This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. A couple of years ago, we presented a story produced by Peregrine Andrews about how certain sounds, like the sounds of skis on a cross-country track or hoofbeats on a horse racing track, were faked on sports broadcasts. It ended up being one of our most popular and provocative episodes ever, mainly because people were really taken aback by the notion that any part of a sporting event might be faked. That episode was just a small excerpt of a much longer documentary called The Sound of Sport, and we got a number of requests from our audience over the years asking where they could hear the entire piece. And today, my friends, we are going to present it to you in its full glory. This is a fascinating, exquisitely produced, deep, deep dive into the sound design of sports broadcasting, a subject that I'll bet most people have never even considered before. That's just one of the reasons why I love it. Keep in mind, this was originally broadcast in 2011, so it's after the World Cup in South Africa and before the London Olympic Games in 2012, so just to place you in the proper sports history context. This is The Sound of Sport, produced by Peregrine Andrews for Falling Tree Productions and presented by Dennis Baxter. I like listening to sports. I can close my eyes. I can hear every single one in my head. It's my belief that people have ingrained in them a memory of certain sounds. And if that sound is not fulfilled, then the mind knows that there's something wrong. There is an expectation of what football sounds like, and it certainly wasn't. Vuvuzelas, the plastic horns whose noise has been driving people mad. Just that continuous hum which actually drowned out all of the meaningful noises. Ah, the sound of the World Cup in South Africa and those damn vuvuzelas. For many people, this was the first time they'd really thought about how sports should sound. But it's what I spend my life thinking and dreaming about. I'm Dennis Baxter, and I designed the sound of sports for television. For nearly 20 years, I've worked exclusively on the Olympics as their staff sound designer and engineer. I decide how to capture each event sonically so that it brings as much drama and excitement into the home as possible. They get away first time. Powell has got a very good start. So did Dixon. I'm gearing up for London 2012, and it's going to be a big job. I'll be using a team of 350 sound mixers, about 600 sound technicians, and close to 4,000 microphones. was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1954, and essentially I think that I've been a sound person my entire life. When I was about eight or nine years old, my dad bought me a cassette recorder, and I was recording everything. I would go into the bathroom, my mom would be on the toilet, and I'd just pop in with the microphone and start recording her. My uncle had a restaurant, and I washed an awful lot of dishes, and when I was 14 years old, I had enough money to buy a reel-to-reel recorder. It was around $1,000 at the time. It was a staggering sum in 1968. This is the size of a big suitcase. <laughs> Couldn't drive, so I used to hitchhike and carry that recorder to the churches and to the high schools and record just about anything that I could possibly record. <laughs> I was a veteran, so I went to school on my GI Bill and studied economics. They uh, taught me a lot about borrowing money. So at the end of my college degree, I had done my final papers on a recording studio and had convinced a bank to loan me the money. And before I knew it, I was several hundred thousand dollars in debt. That recording studio dream is a misguided dream uh, that you're going to make your own music and live happily ever after. And then all of a sudden you're struggling to get people in the studio recording things that you don't want to record and frustrated with the situation. The 
We're just minutes away from the first event on the ESPN schedule. In 1982, I found another and more profitable use of my audio skills at the newly formed sports television channel, ESPN. Instead of musicians, now I was capturing the sound of car racing, tennis, baseball, football, whatever they sent my way. Your Majesty, I humbly ask you to declare the Olympic Games of 1948 open. That was the first Olympics to be televised by the BBC, though fewer than 100,000 homes had television at the time. As you can hear, there isn't much more than commentary to be heard. My own relationship with the Olympics began in 1992, when I was offered the first full-time job as a sound designer. I went back and listened to every single sport, trying to understand why we were covering the sports the way that we were, what sounds were there, and what sounds were really missing and why. I came from music, I came from a recording studio, and I wanted to apply those techniques and standards to the live world. And one of the first things that we implemented in the Olympics was a lot more close miking. This is where you put a microphone as close as possible to the sound source. If you use this technique, you need a lot of microphone because each microphone can only capture a little piece of the whole picture. But you get more detail and definition and a hell of a lot better sound. The parallel bars and the uneven bars for the women's gymnastics when you put the microphones that close to the athlete, you hear the flexing of the bar, you hear the breathing, you can even hear the rustling of the clothing. very anti-rock and roll and he goes okay I'll get you a guitar and I was just thrilled well come Christmas morning he got me a guitar and it was an acoustic guitar with a Chet Atkins record and I love Chet Atkins to this day but for the next two years after I got the acoustic guitar all I was trying to do was make it louder and I stumbled across a contact microphone which is a, a device a microphone that you actually can stick right onto the top of the guitar to amplify it it picks up the actual vibrations of the wood and consequently the sound of the guitar. Thirty years later, I'm looking at gymnastics. The balance beam is a synthetic resin type of material that athletes, they balance on, they do somersaults, they do all kinds of routines on top of it. And I'm hearing this balance beam. I say, you know, that has a certain resonance in there that we cannot hear, that someone probably has never heard. Is that a new texture that we should put into the mix? And by the time we put the contact microphones on there, it gave a new level of depth because the contact microphone hears the vibration in the entire bar. You're hitting the athlete on the bar, you're hitting the depth and the movement. Roger Federer to In 2008, the team responsible for the sound of the Wimbledon men's final was nominated for a BAFTA award. I love atmosphere. That is 
my job as far as I'm concerned. It's the atmosphere that you generate that makes people be there. I'm Bill Whiston and I'm the sound supervisor who did the sound for the 2008 Wimbledon tennis finals, uh, the gents. That's the sound of Wimbledon. That hush, the bouncing of the ball on the court. That atmosphere is the sort of thing that I am trying to bring into the home. That hush, when everybody is fully expectant of something brilliant to happen. There's lots of microphones on the court. Basically, the court is covered by uh, a very nice small stereo mic stuck on the back of the court, just above the centerline judge's head. So that occasionally causes an interesting moment when they shout. And there are other microphones dotted around the court looking back at the crowd, uh, above the crowd, to get a general atmosphere of the inside of the court. And you will no doubt have seen on close-ups of the chair when the contestants are sitting either side of the chair during uh, changeovers that you have an array of microphones actually on the chair. And those are used these days, ever since Mr McEnroe's outburst, to try and pick up anything that's interesting and said to the umpire. Crawford serves. Hines gets it back in the centre. Crawford drives into the net. That's bad. Bad for him. Juice. The way tennis used to be covered way back in the early days was to actually have what was called an apple and biscuit microphone. They'd stick that over the top of the umpire's chair, so you got a bit of umpire on this, as well as the rather distant smashes of the ball. His service puts him at such an advantage, even when Crawford gets it back, that he's able to come up and volley and put the ball where he likes. Crawford returns the service, and it's up. Let it out. When I first joined Outside Broadcasts, they were still doing mono. It was early 80s, and I was asked to do court two in stereo to see if we could develop a technique for doing that, and came to, in the end, using quite a posh and expensive and not very weatherproof microphone, which is a beautiful stereo microphone, but really oh! normally used for covering orchestras. And then that meant that your players were actually moving around left to right as they ran around the court. That's now evolved into a surround technique where you have not only the crowd and the players in front of you but the crowd also goes all the way around the back of you so when you're in the middle of a cheering crowd, when it's been recorded well, the surround really involves you in the play, if you like. It's like actually being there. Thirty fifteen. The dynamic range, the difference between the quietest noise and the loudest noise doesn't half keep you on your toes. If you've got the court mix on a fader and you take that fader down in anticipation of it getting very loud on the court and you do it ahead of time, you ruin the effect. What you've got to do is time it in such a way that the second that that quiet atmosphere changes 
into the huge roar from the crowd, you've got a split second to fade down that effect, if you like. Over the years, I've managed to develop this sort of sixth sense in a way that I, I can guess pretty much now, nine times out of ten, what the crowd's going to do. Getting that exciting stillness, anticipation, and then this huge roar when it's all developed into something really wonderful. And, of course, keeping the commentator on top of it. Well, that would be the right time to serve your first ace. Nadal now with a second set point. What was brilliant about that particular final was that they let it breathe. They didn't talk all over it all the time. I have had a number of people say to me, is there any way that we could have a feed without a commentator? I think that would be something that people would really appreciate. You could add your own commentary then. <laughs> Producers of the old school would tell a commentator to shut up. Um, I don't think many do now. Uh, I'm Barry Davis and for a few years I've been a commentator on, on various things. When a goal is scored, I would just hold my commentator if I was producing just for five, six seconds, wind up the sound of the crowd and then let him come in. I used to try and make a, a thought in my mind that if you can't think of what to say, say nothing, which is actually the best policy. But invariably one forgets that from time to time. You get carried away with the emotion. Euro 96, when England played Germany in the semi-final, I can remember very well, for, I would have thought, something close to ten minutes before the teams came out. So much good sound from around the stadium, just with a few odd observations from the commentator. joining in the famous those who've come to support the opposition and those only well known to their friends people may be unaware of what I'm trying to achieve but if you've got a bunch of people sitting at home going gosh wasn't that a, a terrific match they don't actually say, gosh, wasn't the sound terrific, but you know that is so much part of it. In a football match, what we do nowadays is to have a stereo atmosphere mic and then 12 mics around the pitch, which you fade up and down as the ball moves up and down the pitch. In other words, chasing the ball around so you can get the kicks and the scuffles and the shouting and all that sort of stuff. It's a difficult technique to get across to people who haven't done it before. It's anticipating where the ball's going to go. Personally, I don't favour the system of fixed microphones around the pitch that Bill describes. I prefer to use four roving operators who each point a directional microphone at the action. They follow the action. I believe that this gives a better, more defined kick sound, and it's a method I've used at the last four Olympics and we use in London for the 2012 football events. What you're hearing now is a game from the Athens Olympics in 2004.
At every Olympic Games, uh, I try to ratchet up the excitement and entertainment value. Uh, and certainly winter sports are fun because you're trying to convey a sense of speed and motion. I've always enjoyed the sound of bobsled. In Vancouver, there were 44 cameras. At each camera position, there was a distinctly different oral perspective. And I was trying to put the viewer, the listener, in the place of the athlete. And I made every camera position a sound zone. Some people may say that 284 microphones is a bit excessive, but you have to remember that every camera perspective, every visual perspective for the viewing audience has a different sound texture and a different sound uh, color. like a piece of music that if you just sit and listen to the crowd you hear like how it swells and dives and peaks and then suddenly bursts it sounds to me like an orchestra i'm rob noakes i'm a sound effects recordist for movies in hollywood i get hired by the movie studios to record sounds specifically for their movie. For example, if you have a specific sports movie, be it horse racing, hockey, figure skating, football, basketball, they bring me in to capture the essence of the crowds and the game itself. The sound of the basketballs, uh, the sound of horses' hooves, horses breathing, players tackling each other, all that kind of good stuff. So they bring me in so that they can recreate the feeling of being really into that event when you see the movie the game of their lives. It was the greatest team in any sport I have ever seen. The Game of Their Lives was a football movie about the 1950 U.S. men's national soccer team that was competing in the World Cup in Rio in Brazil. And uh, they went on to beat England, which was shocking at the time because England was the best team on the planet and America was probably one of the worst teams I was asked to go down and record football crowds for the movie. In North America, we don't have football crowds that are that exciting and rambunctious. I went to Brazil and I recorded football games. I went to Morumbi Stadium to record a game between Brazil and Bolivia, and the crowd was insane. I would just, you know, move around the stadium and listen for pockets of chanting and cheering or loud fans and listening for the energy. They are out of their minds singing in huge 10-foot drums. When you can feel someone screaming and their, and their guts are coming out as they're yelling, that's going to translate when you hear it in the movie. So I'm looking to record the people that are really passionate and into it. And so I would set up near them. I had a handheld recorder. I'd try to not let them know I was recording. So I didn't want to change their performance. You have people in the loop group, you know, actors, they're not going to go that deep and scream like a fan in an audience will. It's amazing. When you can recreate with real people that energy, that's the way to do a sports movie. Sound puts you in the actual environment and it really does create an emotional response. 
my name is uh, Gordon Dirty. I am the studio audio director at Electronic Arts Canada, specifically the sports video game end of the company. So we make games like uh, FIFA, hockey, soccer, American football, golf, pretty much the entire range of sports. We're taking a scientific approach to a very emotional process, which is, you know, let's reanalyze how crowds work. Instead of this big wash of sound where everything's happening at once, there's that guy in the corner there whose face is painted purple, and he's got his team shirt on, and he's got a big drum, and he's trying to get his corner of the stadium all riled up. And maybe a wave starts around the stadium, and maybe it doesn't. So, you know, our future push is let's get into actually modeling how crowds behave and how these different particles of sound actually interact to create a large crowd. We work a lot at how can we keep improving the actual game experience. We try to bring it down as authentic as possible, but then we have to go beyond because normally you would not hear you know, the details of the sound on the pitch on TV, but as a game player, you expect to hear the kicks. For this last South African World Cup, we hired people in South Africa to record the crowds. We have to build the game quite a few months in advance of the event. Uh, we actually had the crowds come back from South Africa, and I went down to one of the audio sound guys' rooms, and I kept hearing this beehives going on. What is this thing? This is driving me bonkers. You know, can we not turn that thing off or down? He goes, no, no, this is this Vuvuzela thing. It's, it's part of the thing that you have to have this or it's not authentic. So we actually put a mute button on, finally, to say that you can mute it or, or lower the volume of it. And then when the actual uh, World Cup started in South Africa, people were saying, you know, how come the TV channels can't just put a mute button like they do in the actual video game? Diving is another one of my favorite sports. It's a great example of really trying to isolate the micro sounds of the sport. You can really separate the above sounds in the swimming hall and the below sounds, the underwater sound. It really conveys the sense of, of focus and the sense of isolation of the athlete. We have microphones on the handrails as the divers walk up. You can hear their hands, you can hear their feet, you can hear them breathing. We have a microphone at the bottom of the pool under the water. When the athlete goes under the water, we shift the perspective to just them and the underwater sound. You can hear the bubbles. You get the complete sense of isolation, the complete sense of the athlete all alone. Archery. I like the sport. After hearing the coverage in Barcelona of the 92 Olympics, there were things that were missing. The easy things were there. Uh, the thud and the impact of the target. That's a no-brainer. And a little bit of the athlete as they're getting ready. But it probably goes back to the movie Robin Hood. I have a memory of the sound and I have an expectation. So I was going, okay, what well, would be really, really cool in archery to take it up a notch? And the obvious thing was the sound of the arrow going through the air to the target, which would be the, the f -f 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 type of sound. So we looked at a little thing called a boundary microphone that laid flat. It was flatter than a pack of cigarettes. I put a little windshield on it and I put it on the ground between the athlete and the target and it completely opened up the sound to something different. And 
for some reason, directors don't like to see the microphones. They do like hearing good sound, but there is a resistance to actually seeing microphones in the picture, which is one of the challenges that we have. And the Boundary microphone fulfilled that challenge because you could creep the microphone closer to the actual source. Of course, the umpire has to line up the boats first of all and get them into line and see if they're both straight. The umpire has been down, he came down about a quarter of an hour ago to line up the actual stake boats. The engine of the launch has started up and the excitement is growing quite visibly or audibly on both sides of the river now. I wonder if you can hear them on this microphone. Well, we find ourselves on a quite glorious day down on the Thames at the boat race, and it's absolutely magnificent. Paul Davis, I'm an executive producer with BBC Sport, look after tennis, rugby union, golf, the boat race, and a few other things. Sound is its a hidden jewel, isn't it, really? I mean, I think it's one of those things that one takes for granted because, for obvious reasons, you can't see it. And when it's going great, no-one sort of refers to it. When it goes wrong, there is literally a, a, a deathly silence. I'm a huge supporter of sound in uh, outside broadcast television, and I think the guys that we work with really respect that. Okay, well, Oxford is rock solid, but I don't have any Cambridge at the moment, just, well, coming and going. They're probably more. I would concur with that, yeah. All right, mate, thank you. My name's Andy James, I'm a sound supervisor. We're at the, um, at the boat race at Putney, and um, my job is about augmenting what you're seeing with what you hear. Whenever I look at a shot, I want to try and better it with the sound. That, that's always my aim. So Paul cuts up a really, really good shot of the crews, and you can see the looks on their faces. I want to hear every bit of effort they're putting into that stroke, and that's really what our job is about. Make sure that every shot Paul cuts up, we can match it with sound and make it even better. Um, I'm looking at the jib at the Oxford boathouse. There's a nice lower balcony that's very clear would look very good, I think. Okay. Quite often, a lot of the motivation for directing an outside broadcast is visually driven, but often I think that can come from sound as well. I mean, if we have two very motivated coxes and they're both mic'd up and they're delivering some outstanding sound, then there's a real motivation, A, to hear that sound, to understand what they're delivering instruction-wise and, and actually just to add atmosphere as well, um, then that's hugely motivating in terms of going visually to their cameras to see the cocks delivering it and then how the rowers are, are reacting to it as well. So those motivational reasons for hearing sound I think is great rather than it just being wallpaper. We're passing the boathouses now. We're just going to take the Oxford stroke. Now then, in, out, one, out. Two, out. Three, out. It's sort of bleeding through, four, Georgie, but out. again, really... Right, out of interest, five, I've got three and four we'll for you, the coxes, but I don't have one and two Okay, audio. seven boathouse and eight boathouse, so Oxford on seven. On the boat race, we've got about six different shore sites all the way down the course. We're at Putney at the moment, which is where the boats start, and we've got various stereo effects mics up and down the, the towpath. And then as we move from site to site moving down the course, um, we have local effects mics there that are radio-linked back to us here where I can mix them in to the main sound. We also have mics on the crew boats themselves and on the chase boats, so we can pick out the various different effects that we need as the boats move off down the river. The time has come. We start off the first half of the programme will all be a presentation element when the presenters will be introducing what's going on. Claire Balding will be with us. And this is the time, their time. Good afternoon. It's just gone a quarter to four. We are live in the boathouse of last year's winning crew, Cambridge University. So that's the first element. And then we move into the race itself. And I'm basically moving along my sound desk from left to right. Starting from... Just give us five minutes, Joe. I've got a, a 96 fader mixing desk here. And I'm starting from the left-hand end. I've got my commentary mics down one end. The first stroke is so important. It has to be good. 600 more to come, but the first one is the platform. Which We've the got various high-distant effects mics, one up on the hoist, which gives a sort of panoramic view of Putney. Then we move on down towards, I'm up to about Fader 41 by now. We're into mics in the boathouses themselves. Cambridge have this box, has our hand up again. 
then we're kind of into the race itself, the start of the race, and we've got the umpire's boat as the umpire gets the race started. Attention! Go! Then there's the Oxford and Cambridge boats themselves, and there's two effects mics that hopefully pick up the sound of the rowing. The coxes on the boats have a mic on them, personal mic on them. Sometimes the language that comes from the cox isn't broadcastable, so we have to have an alternative to go to. And that's part of the, on a live job like this, you've got to work out what the coxes are saying, is it transmittable? But nevertheless, what they're saying is it gives you really good information. Get us into it, Stan! Now! Right Go, Balfour! Yeah, half a length of moving! Loose. That's their bend running Loose. out right good. here, boys. I'm not ready to go. Going on the bend, boys. Sitting third of a length down. Nice. Driving on to it. Driving on the handle. Stay Every loose, seat, stay relaxed. Every seat. Yeah. Coming in for a clash on strike side nice again. Boy, Look at him. That's that Ben running out. Look at right him. On that That's it. This is our rhythm, boys. Yeah. Keep the flow. Yeah, boys, let's stay long on the arms. Blow. Just think about that earth noise for ten. Think Blow. about that earth noise. Blow. Ready? Go. Coming into the three. And then we're into the various shore sites. So there's another 15 faders down there of shore sites, which will be able to pick up the crowds that are locally watching from the various different places on the race. They tend to give us a good bit of colour because they're all having parties. It's about building up a multi-layered oral picture. Oxford then heading towards victory, it is all but certain. There is Chiswick Bridge at the top of your picture and the finish line sits just before that. The brewery on the left-hand side and Sam Winterlevy does his work again, shouting, not letting up. They will not let up, Oxford. Cambridge around to the winning post. Oxford two, and a, two lengths behind, two and a half lengths behind. Flag's gone down, Cambridge are one. Cambridge have won by two and a half lengths. Well, Cambridge have won... The boat race of 1933. Cambridge still with a slightly higher stroke rate, but into the final straight they come. And the pace, of course, from Oxford has dropped slightly. Hunched figures, tired, but the job is almost done. As a spectator, you actually see very little of the race. You'll see the start or the finish or somewhere in between. What we can do is actually convey an atmosphere throughout the whole race for the viewer, so you actually get a much better experience. After defeat last year in 2011, the Thames belongs to Oxford. To them, the victory, the smiles, the celebrations, the spoils, everything is theirs. And Cambridge have what is left. I think it's all about layering. With pitchers, there's a degree of layering, but it's fairly clear-cut. Literally, you're cutting between pitchers. With the sound, I think you can build up the layers. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please stand for the national anthems? Covering anthems, for example, during Six Nations, and whether you, when you go to the anthem shots of the teams and you're tracking along the close-ups of the players, do you actually want to hear the choral singing of the stadium or do you want to hear, in all due respect, the fairly poor singing of the individual players? That's an interesting mix that the sound guys have to deal with because you want the personality and, and, you know, clearly they know the words but often they're not sung very well. But if you didn't hear their sounds at all, then you'd feel a bit cheated. OK, all right. 
When we do the rugby these days, we have a radio mic on the referee. Time on, please. For years, we used to sit with a radio mic on the referee, but it wasn't transmitted. And then eventually, the rugby union officials decided to let us transmit this wonderful addition to the commentary. That's what it is. It's part of the commentary. And I think it adds so much. I don't think you could use the technique for football. <laughs> take the hits, please, on contact. You make sure I you go straight. There, you go straight. Yeah. I get him to take the hit. Here we are. There's your mark. Take legitimate pressure this time. Crouch! Seconds. Hold. Touch. Pause. So the addition of a microphone on the rugby referee opened up another dimension. It puts you right into the game. You can be the player. I believe that is the future of sports sound. Microphones on the athletes and players themselves, if you can persuade them to wear them. And here's another sport that benefited hugely from this technique. Curling was introduced to the Olympics in, I think, 1988, when the Winter Olympics went to Calgary. And the rest of the world going, curling, curling. How are we going to make curling exciting? How are we going to introduce curling to the world? And early on, we started putting microphones, wireless microphones, on the curlers. Yes, so. Oh, yeah. If we nose it, it's a pretty big pocket. He freezes the back, we nut the nose hit. Or... <sighs> they're a strategy. They're encouraging each other. They're talking. They're constantly talking. Uh, there's a lot of screaming. It's a very, very vocal sport. Third? It's uh, half a rock. I'd say thin third. It's a, yeah, third. It's a thin third. Okay, I'll aim for a third, boys. Yeah, third's close. It brings the intimacy to the audience, and it has really been a huge boost in the ratings and the interest in the sports. With a video game, it's an interesting position in that you are the player on the field. You're also the viewer of the game. So you're sort of in this weird place where you're sort of a spectator, but you're also an active participant. What we found with the sound is that we had to pretty much exaggerate. For instance, on a boxing game, you know, we record the real boxes, but we just don't get the clean sound to get like things like grunts and groans and punches and impacts. So we go into a studio and sometimes we'll recreate a boxing ring to do the, the feet and the falls. And then what we'll do is we'll close mic. It's called a foley artist. It's basically the people that do the footsteps and all the sort of hand props and everything uh, for film and television. We'll have the person like, punch a punching bag or a side of beef or whatever and just get all of the actual punch sounds. Uh, high, low, medium, hard, different angles. <laughs> then we'll get voice talent to come in and do things like all the, you know, the boxing sniffs and all the grunts and groans. And we'll, then we'll do things like you know, break celery and layer it into a body impact sound to get like a cracking rib type of sound. So all of those elements we carefully craft in a studio environment. And then when we layer that back into the game and we blend that in and then we add the live crowds from the venues and we dress it all up, the whole net effect of that is that it does feel fairly authentic. On the tennis game called Grand Slam Tennis, what I did, and this took a lot of tracking down, was try to get tapes from the French Open. And similarly, I got some tapes from Wimbledon as well. So we were able to get a number of matches with different players and different sizes of venues and just basically extract the crowd from there. And, you know, McEnroe or the Williams sisters, you know, grunts, they have very unique sort of shrieks and screams that tennis players do. We were actually able to pull that off the tape as well.
I think it was uh, Venus said, wow, you know, it sounds just like me serving. And it's like, well, it is exactly like you serving because it is you serving that we extracted. I was doing American car racing. They call it NASCAR. And this particular race was a half-mile oval and essentially what would be considered a football-type stadium with very high banking. The cars put out 140 decibels of sound, maybe more than you put 40 of those cars on a half-mile track, and it just sounds like a hornet's nest. There's no real definition. Then all of a sudden the show is over, and there supposedly is the roar of the crowd, but the producer's screaming, oh, I can't hear the crowd, I can't hear the crowd. It's a very basic physics issue where the sound that I want are being masked, they're being drowned out by these cars. So I said, okay, you know, I learned my lesson. I went back to my home studio and I started pulling up some crowd samples and building different textures and things like that. Uh, so my next race, you know, when they showed the crowd, I'd start sneaking some stuff in. And when it came to the end of it, it was a very, very nice crowd swell. And the same producers, you know, you're getting the attaboys, you know, this is great, this is what I want, this is what we're trying to achieve. And then a week later, he found out that I'd used a sample. And then I get a call and say, you're cheating. And I'm saying, well, you know, all right, who am I cheating? Am I cheating the audience? No, the audience sees a crowd. The audience has certain expectations. You see a crowd, you hear a crowd. There's some sports that you just cannot capture the natural sound. Cross-country skiing, uh, biathlon is another one uh, because of the size of the course. And this has been further complicated because as the camera lenses have gone up 110, 120, 130, 140 to 1, these cameras are able to see a half a kilometer, maybe even a kilometer down the course. Now, how do you replicate that sound? Uh, essentially, if you've got cameras that are that far apart from each other, you're putting 20 or 30 microphones to fill uh, as the athletes are coming to you, which is not practical. I am not a purist whatsoever in sound production. I truly believe that whatever the tool takes to deliver a high-quality, entertaining soundscape, it's all fair game. And that has caused some issues because I use samplers. What a sampler is, it's a keyboard that's attached to essentially a digital recorder. When you hit the key on the keyboard, it triggers the sound uh, to play back. And with the keyboard, it also triggers with sensitivity, meaning that if I hit the key real hard, it'll have a little bit more of a harder attack and you can vary the pitch. Uh, if I hit a C note that has a sample and then I hit a D note of the same sample, it will be up a step. So for the skiing, it gives a shh, 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 shh. Redgrave and Pinson still hold the lead. The French in third, and we could do without seeing them at the moment. In Atlanta, one of my biggest problems was rowing. Rowing is a two-kilometer course. They have four chase boats following the rowers, and they have a helicopter. Okay, that's what they need to deliver the visual coverage of it. Okay, but the helicopter and the chase boat just completely wash out the sound. So no matter how good the microphones are, you cannot capture, you cannot reach and isolate sound like you do visually. But people have expectations, okay? If you see the rowers, they have a sound that they're expecting. So what do we do? That afternoon, we went out on a canoe with a couple of rowers and recorded stereo samples of the different type of effects that would be uh, somewhat typical of an event. And then we loaded those recordings into a sampler and played them back to cover the shots of the boats. And the Australians have bitten something back from them, but not enough. Great Britain, gold medals! Stephen Redgrave, Matthew Pinson, mission accomplished. Stand by. Go! 
And they're racing. Good even to Spatch, although uh, Victoria Sponge has dropped back to last early. First to begin on the far side is Dan East, who's up there in the early stages, going fast too. When we do our horse racing, you're not going to get somebody running around the course after the horses. There's no way. And occasionally you will come across very close-up pictures of the horses over the far side, which is done off one of our roving cameras. But you have engine noise in that case, so therefore you wouldn't want a microphone on that, because all you would hear is the car revving up and the cameraman cursing. So, basically, the way you cover all that sort of stuff is to run a tape which has the sound of horses' hooves galloping, which is actually, if I remember rightly, a slowed-down buffalo charge. And if they're doing hurdles, you will have a tape which has the sound of somebody falling through a hedge, I suppose you call it. It's rustling all the time. So as they go through or over, hopefully, the hurdle, you actually fade this up. And if you're clever at it, you vary the level a little bit so it sounds like several horses going through together. That's pretty much a standard thing, and I think it's probably the same recording that they've used for years. Some horse racing events sound strange to me because they have this constant thundering sound, and I can't tell if it's real or not. It's like in horse racing movies, like uh, I did Sea Biscuit and All Hat. I know you can hear the jockeys yelling and screaming at each other, especially when they get tight on a turn. You hear the whips going. I recorded an Arabian horse. Arabians have a different gait than thoroughbreds. And I put four wireless microphones on each hoof. We wanted to control the speed of the horse, so we had the trainer run the horse in a circle with a rope. We wanted to control the movement because we have $12,000 in gear on the horse. He did kick one microphone off. If I was going to be in charge for the sound of a real event, I would want to do like the Kentucky Derby and uh, use mic arrays around the track and have some onboard mics and then have mics in the crowd and have uh, mics on the gate. Horse racing fans, they get really crazy when they're cheering. Those people that are yelling, come on, come on. They're like screaming at the top of their lungs and yelling. <laughs> 60. Darts is all about fun. So, you know, we like to have a bit of fun as well with the sound. So what we do is we, we use the, the real sound of the dart hitting the board to trigger some samples and we play around with kick drums, snare drums, dustbins falling over, anything else we can find. And it, it just adds a bit of fun really to what can you know get a bit repetitive. 125. It's not real, but it enhances. That's something that I think most of us involved in sport try and do, try and enhance the experience. We tread the middle road between what's real and what's unreal. If you're sitting at the side of a basketball court, from a TV point of view, the producers want to hear the ball as it goes through the net, the swishing of the net. And that is certainly something that you do not ever hear in the basketball arena. You only hear that on TV because it's exciting. Samuel L. Jackson. I came to teach boys, and you became men. This is our time! Coach Carter. For Coach Carter, the supervising sound editor wanted me to get the sound of the basketball, but he wanted, there's a ping. I don't know if you've ever heard of basketball, but when you bounce it, it goes, bounce, ping, and it kind of has this high, airy ring. We did this great rim stuff, like rim slams, rim hits net whooshes and then we we're trying to capture the sound of this ping and we were right under the net and I'm like no that's not it it just sounds like the big thud of a basketball and the reverb in the room 
But then we went into the corner of the room and I got elevated on the bleachers and I had my microphone above the ball and the guy slammed the ball on the ground and then as the ball was coming up to my microphone, you hear the ping. I've always taken the approach to record the sounds documentary style, like accurate, and then I tried to then find the next level up to go heightened reality. Sometimes you actually have to cheat a sound even bigger to make it cut through. The thing that Hollywood does differently is it sounds huge. The movies sound big, they sound rich. It's definitely more theatrical than real. Just think Fast and Furious or Die Hard. As we've been doing this over the years, sort of emulating broadcast and enhancing it, the broadcasters have been listening to what we've been doing and then using our techniques back in the actual broadcasts. It's very interesting on ESPN. We told them, hey, you know, we're trying to look at your broadcast model to try to sort of capture that classic broadcast thing. And then they told us, well, we've actually been playing your game. And we really love the fact that you guys, you know, push up the whooshes on the bats. So what they do now in broadcast is they actually zip those sounds up, meaning that, you know, when you listen to a baseball game now versus 10 years ago, you hear these big bat whooshes and arm throws and big fat catcher mitts because they have mics located very close to capture those sounds. Many years ago, the audio that people would have been used to expecting from a football match would have been the crowd noise, and that was all. Whereas now they expect to hear every kick, every grunt, every whistle of the referee, because that's what they get used to hearing on video games, on films that have been post-dubbed. So we're always trying to match that sort of sound. The challenge for me is to make sports on TV as engaging as film or video games. If we don't, we're going to lose out. But it's a challenge I welcome. I'm gearing up for London 2012, where the games will be presented in high-definition picture and certainly in surround sound. I'll be pushing to create the best, most involving, most detailed sound ever at the Olympics. And one thing that makes me very happy is I hear that the Vuvuzelas will be banned from the games. I leave you with one of my favorite sounds, the equestrian jumping event. The Sound of Sport was presented by Dennis Baxter and produced by Peregrine Andrews. It was a Falling Tree production originally produced for BBC Radio 4 in 2011. 99% Invisible is Sam Greenspan, Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of KALW San Francisco and produced out of ArcSign in Oakland. Support for 99% Invisible is provided by our diegetic and non-diegetic listeners and by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own website or portfolio. My friends at the Answer Me This podcast have a Squarespace site, and I do hope that you subscribe to them when I told you about them a few weeks ago. Well, if you didn't, uh, in the show, Helen and Ollie and Martin the Soundman, they answer questions sent in from the audience. I've not seen Kramer versus Kramer. Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep fight over their child. And who wins? Kramer. Right, but neither... (laughs) Oh man, I love this show so much. Anyway, using Squarespace, Ali created the Answer Me This store at answermethisstore.com where they sell old episodes to help support the show. And it's a functioning, clean, really well-done e-commerce site created by Ali who will freely admit he has no skills in this arena whatsoever. So think about what you could make on Squarespace today if you possessed actual knowledge. Sign up for a free trial now at squarespace.com. And if you decide to purchase, use the offer code INVISIBLE and save 10%. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Other than their great Squarespace site, the reason I wanted to mention Answer Me This again in this very British episode of 99VI is because I am coming to the UK. Helen Zaltzman and I are planning my first international office hours in London on the evening of September 3rd. 
I'll release more details as they solidify, but keep checking our Facebook site and Twitter for details. The first half of Office Hours will be all business, so bring your radio and podcasting and fundraising questions. And the second half will be a standard meetup and we'll chit-chat, drink alcohol, stuff like that. I'm so excited, so I hope to see you there. I think it's safe to say that this program wouldn't exist if it weren't for Tiny Letter, email for people with something to say. My boy Maslow always has something to say. What do you got to say, Maslow? My friend Rachel says she skipped all of your parts so she can hear what I have to say first. <laughs> yeah, and then I guess she listens to you. This is not the first time I've heard this. Tinyletter.com. It's free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter. From the great people behind MailChimp. We are a founding member of Radiotopia from PRX. Welcome to Strangers. The truth. Theory of everything. Radio Diaries. Love and Radio. Fugitive Waves. From the Kitchen Sisters. Until you subscribe to all of them, you simply will not understand how great podcasting can be. Go to radiotopia.fm or search for Radiotopia in iTunes. If you'd like to support 99% Invisible or any of the shows in Radiotopia, email sponsor at radiotopia.fm. The 99PI experience isn't just this episode you're hearing. We are also all on Twitter at Roman Mars, Sam Listens, Katie Mingle, and Truffleman. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, Flickr, Spotify, SoundCloud. If you pick something out and search for 99% Invisible, you're probably going to find us there. And you are always welcome to stop by our place at 99pi.org. Radiotopia.